0: I'm not sure I can point to a coach in college football last year whose team was more of a roller coaster than I can with Marcus Freeman. Hello, welcome to Always College Football. Today is Friday, August 4th. We hope you're having a terrific fall camp day. That's right, a lot of teams taking the field yesterday. A lot of teams taking the field today for the first time this fall. This week, ton of camps opening up all over the country. We're going to dive in a little bit to it next week. We're going to dive into it just a little bit. Here's some buzz, couple first practice reviews, reach out to some sources, maybe talk to some coaches. Keep it locked in here on Always College Football. I really believe this. We will have you as prepared as anyone. I think there's a lot of great college football podcasts out there. A lot of people committed to building up the game, supporting the game, celebrating the game. Love all our cohorts in the college football world and helping us continue to talk about the game itself. We can talk realignment anytime and we might very well do that on this show from time to time as well. Sometimes it's a necessary evil. It's understandable. Realignment's great, but we still kick off in just a couple weeks. We're just a few days away. From getting games underway and we want to have you prepared. So we will do that. And that will be our mission here in the next few weeks as we get closer to week zero and then ultimately to week one. Mark's here, Jack's here, Jake's here, I'm Greg. We so appreciate you guys coming to us from wherever it is you're coming to us from. And we have appreciated the increased, I guess, conversation on social media. How about my guy Ben Sulser here? Sends me a picture. He's out in Southeast Montana. So he's counting down the days with that Greg McElroy Hashtag always college football podcast. Best podcast on the planet, Ben. We love you. We see you. My grandparents are from Montana, so they're super fired up to see that. We have some listenership up there in the great state of Montana. I also saw Blind Dominic, too, came out and talked to us. Just found a podcast that I really like, but one comment you often say, stay tuned for more on that later. I don't think it needs to be said quite so much, meaning that we're not paying off teases, guys. Gosh, we're we're in year two now. Like, let's stop let's stop having rookie ball here on Always College Football, all right? You got to pay off teases. I'm talking to myself here. So I got to pay off some teases. When I say we'll talk about it later, it doesn't necessarily mean later in the show. It might mean later in the actual off season or in the season or later date. I don't know. I will take that 100% to heart. I appreciate the observation. Blind Dominic. Great stuff from you. Also want to continue to encourage all of you to rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcast, on Spotify. Our numbers have gone up dramatically on both those platforms or wherever it is you get your podcast. Leave us a rating. Subscribe as well. The subscriptions are going up like crazy. Everyone's fired up for the football season. We're going to have you ready, but I wanted to pick out a couple of reviews that really hit home With us, Bono's Broncos said he'd give the podcast five and a half stars if we talked a little more Boise State. Here I am. I'm going to go back to Blind Dominic. We're going to get to that. I promise we will have a Mountain West preview. And I think when we talk about at some point, not in today's show, but at some point we talk about some major shakeups in college football that could happen. Circle week one. Everyone loves Washington. I do too. But don't sleep on the Broncos. They've been a giant killer in the past. They might be a giant killer this year in week one. Maybe they can do it. We will absolutely discuss that matchup and Boise State's program on the show in the weeks to come. Also want to shout out Jarrett316. Awesome review, man. Like you took the time to write an awesome review. We so appreciate that. Your kind words mean the world to us. We will continue to strive to get better, continue to get you prepared, dive into X's and O's, hit the bigger picture stuff. We'll do it all. So we appreciate it, Jared. Thanks for reaching out. Sal Carmona giving us a great review as well. L-A-R 1961 rocks. We see them, guys. Keep them coming. Can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And also, for those of you that are hitting us up on Twitter, at Always CFB at Greg McElroy, give us a follow. Interact with the show there. We'll try to be as diligent as we can in the responses. And for those that think we're pushing conspiracy theories on the show, I just promise you we're not. Like, I I know, like, I'm a conspiracy theorist, too. Like, I've been reading the alien stuff. Like, I've been reading the UFOs or the UAPs. Like, I listen to uh, High Strange on podcasts. Like, I've been... I'm into that stuff, too. I get it. All right. But I promise you on Always College Football, we're not pushing conspiracy theories to get you to watch a game. If what I say on the show is going to lead to you watching Florida State and LSU, then there's something wrong because you should, whether you listen to the show or not, be already very excited about that Sunday night matchup week one. Just saying, just saying, no conspiracy theories here. I promise you, maybe occasionally, but not, not there. Not as it relates to viewership. Like I want you in anyways. If you're not here, you're probably not into college football. You're probably not watching that week one game. All right, speaking of college football this year, here's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about second year coaches, Marcus Freeman. What did he do year one? What can he do year two? Maybe the quietest and best year that nobody really talks about Mike Elko at Duke. What is he going to do? How about what Joey McGuire's done to Texas tech already? How about the excitement going on right there? And there's one other mystery team that we're going to talk about, but we might talk about them in a bunch of different ways today. Might talk about them in a bunch of different ways today. It's Oregon, but either way. Talk about Dan Lanning. What does he do in year number two? A lot of buzz about realignment, probably worthwhile to dress, probably talk a little bit about what I would do in the Big Ten, obviously entertaining, possible further expansion. Would you go west or would you maybe consider something else? That might be something worth noting. So let's start there with the Big Ten. What should they do with realignment? Camps are opening. Football is on its way. We're just a couple days away from scrimmages taking place for several teams. Some teams have been on the field for a week now. Those teams that are participating in week zero, there's a lot of action right now happening on the football field. But, and I say this with a big B, because I I really don't like talking about this stuff this time of year. It's a little bit of a necessary evil. Because it's driving conversation and people are reacting strongly to it. And I think the casual audience of college football is interested in where the dominoes are going to fall here. So I completely understand that it is necessary, but I'm just going to be completely honest. I just want to talk about quarterback competitions. I want to talk about the hierarchy of teams in the Big 12. I want to know, is it a two team race in the ACC? Like those are the things that interest me, but I want to talk dark horses. I want to talk hot seat. Like those are the things I'm really interested in. I don't like NIL. I don't like realignment. I don't like those things. I just don't want to why, because it's kind of uncomfortable for me. If you want me to be totally honest, like I am a, I am a, a college football fan that grew up during an era in which there was regional biases that were really advantageous to the sport. The West Coast had a superiority complex over the Midwest, who had a superiority complex out of the East Coast, who had a superiority complex over the Southeast, who had a superiority complex over everybody. It's just, I like when there's some regionality to the sport. And the fact that we're abandoning that makes me uncomfortable. I'm going to be honest with you. When I think Big Ten, I don't think Los Angeles When I think Big 12, I don't think Arizona. When I think SEC, I don't really think Texas. But they're obviously very involved now. So I'm okay with it. I get that that's really nothing we can do about it. So we might as well just engage in the conversation. I want to talk for just a moment about the Big Ten. And there are rumors out there. Brett McMurphy had it. Nicole Auerbach had it. Several at The Athletic have have confirmed it, that there are people and 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 I guess presidents and power in the Big 10 that are starting to explore the possibility of a further expansion mean that there's going to be the possibility of Washington, Oregon, Cal, Stanford on the West Coast potentially joining the Big 10. A couple of things I don't understand about this. I don't understand why if Apple says that the Big tw- the Pac 12 is worth 20 million per school Why would the Big Ten engage with programs that have been viewed to be valued there when they have already viewed their own programs somewhere between 70 and 90 million per school per year? It's a pretty big gap. The other thing I would say too, do you really need the West Coast? The only way I can see the Big Ten being willing to add those schools is because they determine over the course of time that the traveling circumstances for USC and UCLA become a significant disadvantage for them on the playing field, in all their sports, I might add. So UCLA having to travel thousands of miles a year is actually hurting their football product or their Olympic sport product. Same can be said for SC. That's why I think you might have to further expand West and to create a division within the big 10 of West coast schools. So I think the only way you do it is if you feel as though there's a competitive disadvantage to the West coast teams in your league. That's the only reason why it makes sense because financially I have a ton of respect for Washington, ton of respect for Oregon, some respect for Cal, some respect for Stanford, not being light. I just, I wonder sometimes about their commitment to football, but that's a conversation that we can have on a different day. So, I have a ton of respect for them, but I don't necessarily view them as equal to what money would be distributed by Fox, NBC, and CBS. One more thing. If I were in charge of the Big Ten, this is, I replaced Tony Petiti in an interim basis. Let's say Tony Petiti, hey, Greg, come tell me what you would do. He would never do that. But here's what I would do if I were in charge of the Big Ten. I'm not encroaching on anyone's territory if I go west. Like, we own the west coast right now with USC and UCLA. Do we need to have a monopoly on the west coast? Eh. Given the interest in the product, probably not. Just being completely honest, probably not. But you know where there's a lot of interest in college football? In the southeast and along the eastern seaboard. Because right now, I know UCF joined the Big 12. I understand that West Virginia is in the Big 12, but when you look at the East Coast and, and the Atlantic Seaboard and Florida and, and South Carolina, that is owned by one league right now, and that's the Southeastern Conference. And if I were Tony Battiti and if I were the Big 10, I would be exploring every possible avenue that I could to engage in discussions with Clemson, to engage in discussions with Florida State, to entertain the idea of maybe considering Miami, along with North Carolina and Virginia. Like the East Coast to me, for the Big Ten, would be far more advantageous than the West Coast because you're encroaching now on your biggest competitor's turf. The SEC has no interest in going West. They say you can have it, go for it. But the SEC wants to continue to dominate the Southeast which they have for quite a while. But if you start encroaching on their territory, that's when I think you could get the SEC to potentially react. And maybe in order to get out in front of it, maybe they entertain the idea of adding Clemson, Florida State, maybe others in an effort just to keep the Big Ten out of the Southeastern footprint in the United States. So that's where I stand on the whole realignment angle is that the SEC... They hold true to their values and geography. They, they feel like geography is a strength of theirs. The Big Ten kind of punted on that, and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But they punted on that by adding two West Coast programs, two big-time West Coast programs, I might add. So I think they added good value by getting out West and getting SC and getting UCLA. Will they continue to go West? If you want to, sure, but I just don't think juice is worth the squeeze. If you're really going to make an impact and really shake things up, You start making phone calls to Clemson, South Carolina, and Tallahassee, Florida. That would be my play if I were the Big Ten. So all this scuttlebutt about the West Coast and all this other stuff, that seems fine. feels like a distraction to me. Hey, guys, we're considering these. And then, boom, they strike. They go after North Carolina, Virginia, Clemson, and Florida State. Or Miami, whatever. You get the point. Watch the East Coast. I'd focus a lot more on the East Coast as it relates to realignment. And grant of rights conversations, all these other things. I'd watch that part of the country before I watch the West Coast right now because it doesn't feel realistic that moves are going to happen out west. If the Big Ten comes down and, and does that, what would be the SEC's response if, if Clemson, Florida State, you know, North Carolina, and Miami are gone? What's the SEC's response? I, it'd be a big one. I do think the SEC, and I, I don't look. I say this just. I don't have inside information. I'm not trying to say I do. I, I've talked to some folks at Florida State. I've talked to some folks at other places. Um, I don't get the sense that the SEC is really in a position right now to be aggressive. Now, within their contract with ESPN, there is a pro rata where they could get more money collectively depending on the school that they add. So there is advantages to expanding, but I don't think they're going to do so unless it's to be defensive from allowing the Big Ten to capture the Eastern Seaboard at all. And right now, Big Ten and their alignment with the East stops at Maryland. Uh, Right now, if they get into Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Florida, that's when they really start to encroach. And I think if the Big Ten started to entertain that possibility, then the SEC would probably proactively move. And then I think culturally... Clemson and Florida State would make more sense in the SEC. So I think if given the opportunity to join either, I could see Clemson and Florida State aligning themselves with the SEC. Virginia, Virginia Tech, North Carolina, NC State, Miami, the rest of the Magnificent Seven. Those would be the schools that I think would be a little bit more of a question mark right now as to where their, I guess, loyalty or where their preference might lie. If all that does happen, then what happens with Oregon and Washington? Are they just left out in the cold? Are they calling the Big 12 and saying, hey, are you? is there still room for us? What do you see happening for them? Well, like I said already, it kind of just depends on how things work out with USC and UCLA. Because if they find that USC and UCLA are at a competitive disadvantage because of the amount of time zones they have to play in, the amount of miles that they travel... And we find two or three years down the road that USC and UCLA are really falling off. They're really tailing off in November because the team's just flat out out of gas. Then I could see that potentially having an impact. And them saying, you know what? Hey, we're better suited having a four-team division along the West Coast where they're playing along the West Coast and the travel challenges are not as significant. Now, you still have to go cross-country occasionally, but it won't be as significant as it was in the first year or two of your membership here in the Big Ten. So I could see them moving on those two schools, but I just, right now, based on the people that I've talked to and those with knowledge of the situation, it doesn't sound like there's a lot of interest in adding Oregon and Washington. It sounds like the more interesting play for the Big Ten down the road would be along the East Coast. So I think they'd maybe be in a holding pattern. Maybe they go independent. Maybe they go with the Big Ten, uh, Big 12, Maybe they stay put in the Pac-12, and the Pac-12 adds some more schools, and they get an automatic qualifying berth into the playoff every year. I'm not sure exactly what they do, but based on what I've been told, and like I said, I can only trust my sources. I don't know. I don't. I'm not in those. I'm not in the room where it happens. All right. So I, I'm a little Hamilton reference there. I I don't know, but based on what I've been told, the the networks and and the people with knowledge of the situation, they feel like. If they were to take their priorities and list them out 1 through 10, it doesn't sound like Oregon and Washington are at or near the top of that list. And lastly, this just it feels like if there is more expansion and the Big Ten does this and they go down the eastern seaboard, Notre Dame would ultimately just be in the big Ten, right? That's pretty much their only option. Probably, but there's really no point for them to move at this point. Uh, would they in time continue their scheduling alliance with the ACC? possibly depends on what the ACC looks like, but Notre Dame will go to the table at some point too against NBC and try to renew their individual television rights. So are you better off from a matchup standpoint when you're selling your home games for a big, big number? Are you better off playing the likes of Boston college? Are you better off playing the likes of Pitt? Are you better off playing the likes of, of Georgia tech? And Wake Forest, are you better off playing those? And are those games going to be more valuable to NBC? Or are you better off playing against teams in the Big Ten or teams in the Southeastern Conference, which I know everyone says is an unlikely possibility? I've been told that's not entirely true. A scheduling alliance with the SEC could actually happen down the road where they play three or four SEC games a year because guess what? That's going to be a really valuable asset for Notre Dame to sell an SEC at Notre Dame game to NBC and one that probably would line their pockets even more so than they've been lined up to this point.
1: Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be.
0: We've started this this week talking a little bit about first-year coaches on Monday. Then on Wednesday, we got into some second-year coaches and just reviewing what they did in year one, what they might need to do in year two, and how they can progress their program in a positive way. Now, I'm not sure I can point to a coach in college football last year whose team was more of a roller coaster than I can with Marcus Freeman. Now, Marcus Freeman, who I might add, first time as a head coach, and you're taken over at a place like Notre Dame. Week two, you have a quarterback injury. Your first game as the head I know that the bowl game last year, that's fine. We'll remove the bowl game from 2021. But your first game's against Ohio State, one of the best teams in America. Then your next game, your quarterback gets hurt. I mean, that's a pretty tough place to start. And I know it was low-hanging fruit for everybody to say, oh, he ain't cut out for this, he can't handle this. But he kind of started to find a little bit of an identity with his program as the season went along. Now, there were some good wins in the regular season last year. I mean, there really were. When you think about it, though, it was really a lot of the positivity coming into last year and this year and the year prior, we're looking at Marcus Freeman as a program builder, which is amazing given the fact that he's been a head coach for, what, 14 games? But he's a program builder because of his ability to now relate to the players, his ability to now reach out and interact on social media to do the videos, like the Jerry Maguire green jersey video, don't like the jersey, love the video, love the marketing, But little things that he's doing now to just put his program into the spotlight, just a little bit more than they already were, and that's hard to do given the fact that it's Notre Dame. But when you get beyond his ability to recruit, you also kind of get beyond where he was as a coach last year. Now, there were a lot of difficult things to kind of figure it out. I mean, we're talking about nine-win season, pretty dang salty, but... When you think about the range of outcomes, it's almost impossible to wrap your head around. You lose to a Marshall team, but I've already talked about this. Buckner gets hurt. It was a weird game. Turnover battle, terrible. Get gashed on the ground, which is not something we've seen from a Marcus Freeman coach defense at any point in his time at Cincinnati or anywhere else he's been. You lose to Stanford, which I still can't quite figure out. Both those games were in South Bend, I might add. And they were physically beaten up in both. But then you think about going 4-0 against the ACC, including destroying both division champs, beating up North Carolina out of the Coastal and beating up Clemson to the point in which Dabo Sweeney said they just kicked our behind. It was probably one of the few times, maybe ever, that I've ever seen Clemson get physically beaten down. Clemson's always been very strong. They've always been pretty physical, especially their front seven defensively. It didn't look that way last year when they were playing against Notre Dame. But you think about the first six games, a three and three record, average team really across the board. Some poor performances, not great offensively, just average. But down the stretch, final seven games, they go six and one. And if you look at some metrics, they were in the top 10 in some cases with how they were able to handle the opponent. They have now put together three consecutive top 10 recruiting classes. They've added a ton of depth to positions of need. And I think you can make a case that they brought in the nation's best transfer quarterback in Sam Hartman. And even though that last year, the passing attack struggled, when you lose your quarterback in week two, it's not really all that unusual. But the passing attack struggled because I think, in part due to the fact that if you could just keep Michael Mayer in check just a little bit, who on the outside is really going to scare you to death? So what they do, they go out, they sign a bunch of quality transfer wide receivers and recruiting class wide receivers. The offensive line is still going to continue to be a remarkable strength. The defensive line, yes, you lose a couple key pieces, but at the same time, I think practicing against that offensive line is going to make them better. And there were some young guys that they were very excited about last year, who could take the next step. Here's the problem. They'll be favored in nine games. Now, the Vegas win total is nine, I might add. They'll be favored in nine games, more than likely. And then you look at the other three games. Can they get a win against Ohio State at home? I think it's a little bit more of a toss-up this year than it was last year. Biggest questions for Ohio State, as we've discussed, of the offensive line and the secondary. Well, let's hope that that new group of wide receivers for Notre Dame, maybe they, along with Sam Hartman, their quarterback, they can take advantage of a secondary that might have some questions. You also think about USC. USC, dynamic quarterback play. We know that. Great weapons offensively. But is USC going to be able to hang in there physically against a team that's probably going to be even more physical and balanced than they were the year before. I actually think Notre Dame has a decent chance of matching up okay against SC this year and then of course Clemson and what might be a revenge game but they owned them last year. Will they be able to take it to them yet again? I really like Notre Dame this year. Sam Hartman, if he can play smart, if he can play efficient, and if they can contri- can continue to own the line of scrimmage, they should find themselves in a really good spot. I continue to remain optimistic about Marcus Freeman in the long term. We've never seen Notre Dame recruiting the way they're recruiting right now. I would expect that to continue as long as he is the head coach, but he's going to need to continue to progress this year if they're going to maintain some of that momentum on the trail. Let's go to a guy that has as much momentum as I've ever seen with the program. and This is coming from a guy that at one point was committed to this university. Texas Tech and Joey McGuire. What a year one. When you think about this, and and I will be completely honest, I knew who Joey McGuire was, but I didn't know who Joey McGuire was. And for those that are listening on the podcast, I'm doing the quotations around the second who. I knew the name, but I didn't know what he was about. I knew his background, but I didn't realize just how popular he is in the state of Texas. We're talking about a guy that won three state titles at Cedar Hill, spent five years on Baylor's coaching staff, so maintained those relationships with the Texas High School Football Association. And what we've talked about already, there are 21,000, 21,000 high school coaches in the state of Texas. 21,000. And that's not just head coaches, that's 21,000 coaches in the state of Texas. There's probably not a more beloved figure at the college ranks amongst those 21,000 than Joey McGuire. He's relatable. He's been in their shoes. He's got lifelong Texas roots. And look at how much it's paying off now that he's the head coach at Texas Tech. It was one of those perfect matches. You know, it's like they went to eHarmony. Texas Tech filled out their application. Joey McGuire filled out theirs. And then based on all these unique things and unique ways for them to connect, it's like they're the most perfect match ever. They are. Look at the investment now that we've seen from Texas Tech, not just in facilities, but in alignment with the way that they've now put a, bun- a bunch of money into the NIL. There is a ton of momentum that's being created in Lubbock. And as a result, his first class last year, a time in transition, he finishes in the top 40, which was the best that Texas Tech has had since 2015. This past year, first full recruiting cycle as the head coach of Texas Tech, They finished in the top 25 for the first time in over a decade. They also beat Houston in his first season, which was their first ranked non-conference win since 1989, which even that blew my mind. Because I've remembered back, I was like, man, when I was like a Texas Tech fan, I mean, they were rolling. And then I remembered they seldom played anyone of significance in the non-conference. Then they went on to beat both Texas and Oklahoma for the first time in the same season in school history. Together, beating both for the first time in the same season in school history. All three of those games resulted in a field storming, and all three of those games amped up the energy around the program more so than it's been in quite a while. As a result of all this, they posted a winning season in league play for the first time since oh9 They went 6-1 and one at home, which was massive. And they finished on a really high note by knocking off Ole Miss in the Texas Bowl right there in the great state of Texas as well. So I think there is a ton of momentum coming back too when you look at pieces that return. 17 guys that I would consider to be returning starters. Now, returning starters can carry a bunch of different meanings. Some people say, well, he's kind of a returning starter, but he didn't play that much. I view it and I looked at it and I've watched the tape. I think it's 17 guys that are back that were key with their productivity last year. And I think really for the first time since maybe 2008, you know, the Michael Crabtree, Graham Harrell team, first time since 08, when they're probably going to be picked in the top half of the Big 12 in the preseason and rightfully so, they continue to roll. I think it's going to be a tough year in some cases, For Texas Tech, because I think a league championship, I'm not sure the roster is there just yet, but it's coming and it feels like there's some momentum that's being created. So I'd say the big thing for Joey McGuire, if you can knock off one of your rivals, great. If you can beat Texas again, my goodness, fantastic. That would be a massive, massive win and beating them not once but twice and kicking them in the tail with your boot on their way out the door. That would be huge. But I think being super competitive against some of the top tier teams, if you can knock off a TCU, you can knock off some of these other teams if given the opportunity, you might be in a great spot. So Texas Tech, a team who I believe's arrow is pointing up in large part due to the relationship building process that Joey McGuire's had in the state of Texas for the better part of the last 10, 15 years. So massive, massive fit there. I just couldn't I couldn't be happy. I'm so happy for Texas Tech. I really I'm so happy for them. They deserve this. They have gone through some tough times. They've had some odd hires with Matt Wells and Tommy Tuberville. It just was an odd time for Texas Tech. But man, they have someone that definitely knows what the fans want to hear, and definitely knows how to reach the players in the state as well. Speaking of a young coach that is making a lot of moves on the recruiting trail. By the way, I think our I think the first three, it's like, hey, this is the recruiting momentum. Like We're not doing a ton of recruiting here. We're trying to talk more about big picture where the program's going, but I'd be hard-pressed to not acknowledge the prowess that is on display from some of these coaches with how they've recruited. Let's go to Dan Lanning out at Oregon. Brand new recipient of a nice contract. A nice contract that I'm just going to see him pay $20 million to Oregon if he were to leave for another job in the next handful of years. So he's, he's in, he's locked down (laughs) in Eugene and understandably. So I think a lot of people are probably sniffing around Dan Lanning after what they were able to put together last year. We all remember what happened uh, against Georgia in week one. It was, it was a difficult spot. It was a really difficult spot. And what I think was most important, a lot of teams you get kicked in the teeth that bad, uh, it would kind of get some guys after the game to start looking around and be like, all right, man, like, what are we doing? Like, this is not good. And, and I feel like culturally, that would really challenge the the room. It, it would not be easy to bounce back from that. You put in an entire off season of work. You're all fired up. You get an opportunity to play against the defending national champions. Hey, man, we're going to show them what we got. Like, we're going to shock the world. We're in their house. It's fine. They're in Atlanta. We're good. Like, we're ready to go. And then boom, you get blasted. I could see a bunch of guys jumping ship in that situation, but that could not have been more untrue when looking at the 2022 Oregon Ducks. They responded to that loss to Georgia by rattling off eight straight wins. They scored 40-plus points in all eight games. Seven of those eight wins were by more than 15 points. They were in the midst of the playoff discussion there in November. And then Bo Nix was within an arm's length, at least for the moment, of the Heisman Trophy. I'm not saying he would have won it, but he was in the conversation. And to think of what he was just a year prior at Auburn and what he'd been his entire career up to that point, to think that he was within striking distance of going to New York as a Heisman finalist says all you need to know. Here's the big point of concern for Dan Lanning. And... I know coordinator change. I, I like their coordinator higher. I'm thinking that maybe there's going to be a little bit more balance offensively. Maybe it's not going to be as high octane as Kelly, Kenny Dillingham was last year. So possibly this won't be as much of an issue as last year. And with the clock not stopping at every first down, all this stuff, maybe there's fewer snaps. There's fewer snap exposure. So maybe it doesn't have as much of an impact, but man, if you really look at the defense down the stretch, it really came to a screeching halt. Now you lose to both Washington, who we knew scored a million points. That's It's a difficult game. I understand that offense is potent. But when you think about Oregon State, who's a ball control, grind it out type of team, and they both hang 34 and change on you, that's not ideal. And we know Washington's going to air it out and wear you down. But when you see the Oregon State style of attack and they are just a bulldozing bunch, that's a sign for concern. Now, Ten win season is nothing to shy away from, and Oregon, at least in time, has been accustomed to ten win seasons on a fairly regular basis. Remember, from 2008 to 2014, they won ten plus in seven straight years. But since then, they've only gotten two double digit wins twice. That would be in 2019 and 2021. So it's not like these ten win seasons have been a dime a dozen for for Oregon. They have not been, but. The recruiting continues to be really good. And more than anything else, the buy-in that we got from the team last year after the adverse outcome of the first game tells me that Oregon has the right guy in place. Now, there's room for growth. Maybe there's adaptation with how you maybe slow the offense down just a little bit to make sure your defense doesn't get too gassed. That could be really beneficial. But I think for year one, there's an awful lot to like about what we saw from Oregon in year one. We really do. Now, Will Stein, OC, coming up from UTSA, going to be watching him closely. But defensively, I would think they might take a step this year. Hopefully they will. And maybe Will Stein could take some of the pressure off by slowing it down at times so that they're not high octane all the time and hanging that defense out to dry. So very, very excited. Very excited about the Oregon offense this year. If they can replace those offensive linemen, if they can continue to get Bo Nix playing at a really high level, if they can keep him healthy, they should be in a great position to be highly competitive in the Pac-12 again this year. Another very deep league, like we've talked about multiple times here on Always College Football. And finally, maybe the best coaching job last year that nobody talks about. It was Mike Elko at Duke. Now, Duke has not been a real historical program as it relates to success in college football. It just hasn't happened. All right. But you think about where they were, they had a pretty good run going there in the mid 2010s. You look at where they were both in 2020 and 2021, they fell all the way to five and 18. And it just felt like the, the program had just kind of lost its luster. The fan engagement wasn't exactly there. Well, Mike Elko comes in, they find the right quarterback. They create some balance They do a great job in emphasizing turnovers. Next thing you knew, Duke shocks the world and wins nine games. It's the first nine-win season since 2014, and only the third nine-win season for Duke since 1941. So these impressive seasons are few and far between for the Blue Devils, and as a result, not only did Mike Elko win the most games ever in a debut by a Duke head coach, but he also took home ACC Coach of the Year honors, and my goodness, did he deserve it. (laughs) I thought that he should get two trophies for that performance. So something worth noting there as well. The culture shift, though, I think is really significant. There were very few players that transferred in the offseason. There are a lot of players that are buying into the future of where the program's going. I think there's a lot of people really excited about what could come here for Duke in the upcoming year. Riley Leonard, all ACC potential at quarterback. They have also gone out. And the outreach that they have for their undergraduate population is significant. Their average home attendance last year grew by 10,000, which is pretty dang impressive. It was the second largest percentage increase in the Power Five because they really went after the fans. And they've created, I don't want to say a hostile environment, but a far more hostile environment than what they've seen. If you can get an offense going, you can get the crowd into it. Your defense is going to continue to create turnovers. Remember, Clemson goes there week one on Labor Day. Something to keep in mind. One of the best teams of the modern era returns just about everybody. Okay, just about everybody for them is back. I mean, not everybody, but you think last year, what made them as good as they were? Sure, good play, good quarterback, improved atmosphere, opportunistic defense, balance. A lot of things were great last year, but one thing that was also great: the schedule was gettable. Last year, they played; they faced all five of the ACC teams that failed to qualify for bowls. Now, they had the easiest schedule in the ACC. That overcorrects this year. They're one of just four teams to play both Florida State and Clemson. They only get two teams out of the bottom six here in the preseason. So even though this team might be just as good, it might not necessarily be reflected in wins and losses, but it does feel like Mike Elko knows the recipe for future success, but it will be schedule dependent like it is all the time for a team like Duke. We all know breakfast is an important part of your day, but sometimes when you're traveling for business, you end up staying at a hotel that doesn't offer any. You know what happens? You grab a cup of coffee and skip the meal entirely. We've all been there. But if you book a room at La Quinta by Wyndham, you can enjoy their free bright side breakfast featuring delicious baked goods, fruit, eggs, yogurt, and waffles. And really, who doesn't want to start their day with a fresh, hot waffle? Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book direct at LQ.com. Final thought here. Unfortunate news out of Ames, Iowa. You know we don't like to cover the sport in a negative light. We, We like to celebrate the sport. And unfortunately... The underbelly right now, as it relates to gambling, is starting to find its way into college athletics. We've seen it in the NFL with multiple suspensions. We've seen it hit college baseball this year. We've seen it now find its way into college football. As of this moment, Hunter Deckers is under investigation about potentially gambling on Iowa State events and games that he actually was on the team for. This is troubling. This is not about Hunter Decker's. This is more about the bigger picture, with where we're at in society, and and knowing that gambling is becoming less and less taboo. It is going to be increasingly difficult to keep kids away from gambling. I'm not. Look, there are several states that have adopted gambling as legal. Uh, I'm not. I'm not making excuses for it you know as a player, both in the NFL and in college football, you are not allowed to gamble on sports. You are not. That is not anything that you're ever allowed to do, ever. In a million years, it is highly inappropriate and in some cases illegal. So you're not allowed to do it. You know that as a player. But I do think that this is going to be a story that is going to continue to happen. The access to gambling, the fact that it's legal in several states, we're going to see more and more of this. The fact that it's no longer looked at as taboo, we're going to see more and more of this. And this is going to continue to infiltrate our sport here in the near future. I don't like talking about it, and I hope that there's a way to get it out of the game, but I don't think it's likely. If anything, this is just the beginning of more and more involvement down the road with players and coaches or hangers-on, third-party participants what have you. So I think it's going to be very important for schools and for the NCAA, for the coaches to educate your players to make sure, hey, this is completely illegal. You can't touch it. You can't do it. I don't care if that means bringing Pete Rose in as a guest speaker, like multiple teams are going to do this fall. You can't do it. Absolutely cannot do it under any circumstances, but education is key. So hopefully... This is just a blip on the radar and we don't see it as some widespread problem in college sports because the integrity game is the most important thing that we have and we have to protect it at all costs, at all costs. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. hate to end on a little bit of a dark note, but it's an unfortunate story that's making the rounds right now. So we felt like we absolutely had to address it. But I remember, always really appreciate you guys reaching out whether it's via social media, at Greg McElroy, at Always CFB, hitting us up, asking us questions, sending us emails, at AlwaysCollegeFootball at gmail.com, your ratings on the podcast, your reviews on the podcast, you watching us on the ESPN YouTube channel. We can't tell you how much we appreciate that. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for y'all. We really wouldn't. We love doing the show. We hope that you enjoy the show, and we're going to continue to be here each and every week of the football season. And we still have a lot of camps getting underway. Time to start getting prepared. It's time to start getting fired up because there's a lot of news that will be coming down the pike as far as competitions, as far as battles, as far as maybe even injuries, maybe a late transfer. I've seen a couple already. It's certainly possible at this time of the season. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. For Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful day. And remember, it's Always College Football.